0: Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together as believer priests to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for your word that it is complete, sufficient, that through your word you have given us all the information we need to have a relationship with you and to grow and advance to spiritual maturity. Everything we need to handle any situation, any difficulty, any problem that we face in life. Father, this is just a token of your magnificent grace on our behalf Father we thank you so much that we live in a nation where we have freedom and we pray that you would continue to uh, provide us this freedom that we may study your word that we may send out missionaries and that we may continue to support the nation Israel Father we especially pray at these times for our men and women who are serving in armed forces especially those who are going in harm's way and those who are uh, friends and family members of Those in this congregation We pray that you would watch over them and return them safely to us And that their service will not only be a benefit to this nation But will also be an opportunity for them to witness to your grace in their lives And to be a witness to the gospel We pray these things in Christ's name, Amen Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 And we're going to continue a rather technical study that we began last Sunday. This is on an understanding of who these angels are that are referred to in Revelation 1.20. Now, if you were here last time, we might have burned a few brain cells trying to work our way through this particular study. But it's important because the structure of the next two chapters is in some way based upon an understanding of who these angels are. And I think that as we go through the background of the role of angels in history and in prophecy and we look at the role of the angels in the book of Revelation, what we're going to find and discover is that this enhances our understanding of the individual role of the believer in the angelic conflict. While it's not necessarily a major problem to identify these angels as pastors because, of course, the bottom line is the individual congregations receive the communication of this information in Revelation 2 and 3. But if we go beyond uh, and understand this as pastors and recognize that the term angel or angelos here actually refers to angels as officers of the heavenly court then what it does is it puts us and our congregation, puts our Christian life within the framework of a congregation in a different perspective than perhaps one we've we've thought of before. Just by way of review, last time we started by asking the question, who are these angels? What does the term angel uh, refer to? What does it mean? And we saw that there have been those who have interpreted this to refer to human messengers. In a couple of cases in the scripture, the term angelos does refer to a human messenger, specifically a prophet. Now, a prophet was the mouthpiece of God. And there's a difference between a prophet and a pastor. A pastor is not a prophet. He is an exegete or expositor of the word. He is a teacher of the word. So you have two different options here that have been selected by uh, faithful scholars of the Word. Some have suggested it uh, might refer to a prophet or simply the human messenger that John sent to these churches. Others have said that, it, no, it's the pastor. The reason they opt away from taking it as an angel is because no one seems to come up with a good answer or an adequate solution for the, for the question, why? Would these be addressed to angels? And as I have studied this for a a number of months now, it occurred to me that when we look at this within the framework of the appeal trial of Satan, suddenly the answer becomes crystal clear. And it takes this whole situation, the first part of Revelation, to a new level, and we understand it in a way that is more consistent with the function of angels within the whole book of Revelation. So the second way, as I pointed out, pastor-teacher, the third way in which this is interpreted is angel. And there are a number of scholars who have taken it as angel. But usually what these men do is they take it as an guardian angel, that in some way these angels operate or serve as guardian angels to these churches. And I think that is a misidentification, that in fact this goes to, really looks at the angel in their function as an officer of the Supreme Court of Heaven. Now last time as we got into this, I started off by looking at the first line of argumentation, which had to do with the metaphor defined in Revelation one twenty. Specifically, the Lord Jesus Christ told John that these that the stars that the Lord Jesus Christ held in His right hand were the angels of the seven churches. And as we study Scripture, we see that stars are used metaphorically to refer to only two things. First of all, they're used as a group in two passages, Genesis 37 and Revelation. They're used to describe the twelve tribes of Israel. In Genesis um, 37.9 and Revelation 12.1, The stars are used as a group of twelve to refer to the twelve tribes of Israel. But in several other passages, stars are used as a metaphor for angels. For example, Job 38, 7, they are talked about as the stars of heaven. Uh, Isaiah 14, 13, Satan, in expressing his five I wills, wants to elevate himself over the stars of heaven. Uh, Daniel 8, verse 10 and possibly Judges 5.20. In the New Testament, four passages, all of which are in Revelation, use stars to refer to angels. In fact, I could add a fifth passage we mentioned last time, where an angel or a star fell from heaven to release the uh, demon in the abyss, and this was an angel, also referred to as a star. So this gives us a strong indication from the text of Scripture itself, that that these angels are not pastors. Never are pastors referred to as stars. Second line of evidence that we looked at last time is that is how angels are depicted in Revelation. What is their role in the book of Revelation? And I went through a lengthy survey last time, chapter by chapter, looking at how the angels operated, how they functioned, ...throughout the book of Revelation. And in conclusion, we could say that first of all, they were used to communicate judgments from the Supreme Court of Heaven. They communicated judgments from the Supreme Court of Heaven. The period of the Tribulation, which is covered in Revelation from chapter 4 through chapter 19, is a series of ongoing judgments. And it is these judgments that are announced by various angels... So they communicate the judicial decisions that come forth from the throne of God. Second, they warn of impending judgments. They warn of these judicial pronouncements. So they function, again, in a role that is similar to a modern-day courtroom or or officer in a modern-day courtroom. Third, they carry out or they mediate these judgments. It is the Supreme Court of Heaven that pronounces the judgment, but it is an angel that carries out the function, carries out the uh, actual operation of the judgment, whether it has to do with uh, some sort of geophysical disaster or whether it has to do with some sort of disease or sickness. It is carried out by an angel. Now, if we look at an analogy to a modern courtroom We see something that is parallel. It's not identical. It's just a reflection, perhaps, of this heavenly function. It's my view that all law proceeds ultimately from heaven. It was God's way of structuring His relationship with man from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. God had a legal structure, the verbiage and terminology that's used in Genesis 1, 26-28, where God says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness, that this terminology was later adopted in human contracts so that in the human realm uh, they were modeling their, uh, their contracts, their legal relationships on the way God had originally set things up with man. Once Adam sinned in the garden, you had a restructuring of that initial covenant. We call the first covenant the... Uh, Edenic covenant and this, or the creation covenant, which is a term I prefer. The second covenant is usually referred to as the Adamic covenant. Then later you have the Noahic covenant. But God uniquely restricts and defines his relationship with man according to these legal contracts. Now you look at all the other religions of the world, whether it's uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, or, uh, even uh, Islam, you don't have a God who binds himself contractually to a certain standard of behavior operation. And that tells us that, that ultimately all law flows from an absolute, which is the character of God. This is one reason why you have the this battle over whether or not you can have the Ten Commandments in a courtroom. The very presence of a plaque or a... A poster or a statue that has the Ten Commandments on it is an expression of the idea that law is based in something that goes beyond the Constitution of the United States. It goes beyond society. It goes beyond culture. Law is based in an eternal absolute. It's grounded in the character of God. And to those in our society who have rejected the existence of God and rejected absolutes, it is a tremendous insult for them to see the Ten Commandments. It is an affront to their desire to be independent and autonomous and to run their life according to their own uh, arbitrary whims. And so this is what motivates this move to remove the Ten Commandments. When we look at Scripture, we see that all of Scripture is structured in a kind of legal Framework that supports this analogy of a, of a courtroom. In, uh, in modern courts, in a state court or a uh, local court, the person who's responsible for communicating information from the judge to the jury, who's responsible to maintain order in the courtroom, is, is known as a bailiff. But in the federal court system, you have a different individual. You have a U.S. marshal. And the responsibilities of a U.S. Marshal go far beyond that of a bailiff in a, in a state court. U.S. Marshals uh, protect. They serve as bodyguards or honor guards for the judges. A federal judge will uh, rarely go anywhere without being accompanied by at least one U.S. Marshal. It's a U.S. Marshal whose responsibility it is to protect the judge in the courtroom. It's a U.S. Marshal who serves warrants and who carries out the judicial decrees of the judge and of the court. And this is something that is analogous to the role that we see angels play throughout Scripture. Just just think with me for a minute as we go through the Old Testament. The first time we see any angelic being in the Old Testament other than Satan are the cherubs that are assigned to guard the entryway to the Garden of Eden at the end of Genesis chapter 3. After... Adam and the woman had sinned part of the judicial decree for their punishment was that they were barred from having access to the tree of life and so God places a sentry a guard a cherub with a flaming sword and that sword is a throughout the scripture is a picture of having authority over life this cherub has the authority to take the life of any human being who tries to enter into Eden and to take that fruit of the tree of life. And so he functions like a uh, U.S. marshal in a courtroom. He is guarding the way. You then see uh, a couple of angels accompanying God, uh, actually the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes down to... Uh, Bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah uh, The Lord stays behind with Abraham But it is these two angels that go to Sodom And they bring Lot and his wife and his family out But they are the ones who are responsible for what? Executing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah And then you go to a little later on in the Old Testament You have a situation where David decides to conduct a census of the people in violation of the uh, plan and the will of God. And as a result of that, God is going to bring judgment on the nation, gives David his options as to how he would like this judgment carried out. And so you have an angel carrying out that judgment on the nation at that particular time. So throughout the Scriptures, you have angels carrying out the judicial decisions from the uh, Supreme Court of Heaven. Of course, not to mention the angel of death that that visits the tenth plague on the Egyptians uh, during the time of the Exodus. So angels are used in this way throughout the Scripture to carry out or to mediate or to communicate judgments from the Supreme Court of Heaven. Secondly, to warn of various judicial pronouncements. Coming from the Supreme Court of Heaven. And then third, to carry out or to mediate these judgments. And we'll see a little more on this as we go through this study. Now the third line of evidence that uh, I want to talk about has to do with the role of angels in the angelic conflict. Now this is about as far as we got last time. So up to this point it's been reviewed. What is the role of the angels in the angelic conflict? And I have about eight points here that I want to cover in summary. Point number one, we recognize that the term angelos, or angel, means a messenger. But the primary use of the term angelos, or its Hebrew counterpart, malaak, refers to supernatural intelligent beings that God created to serve him in the administration of the universe. We know from Job 38, 4-7 that God first created the angels. They were referred to as the sons of God because they derived from God. He created them. And we're told in Job 38, 4-7 that when God laid the foundation of the earth, the sons of God sang for joy. All the sons of God sang for joy. So at that point in time, When God laid the foundation of the earth, we know from Job 38, 4-7, that the angels were already in existence. So God must have created the angels first. The second thing we note is that it says all of the sons of God sang for joy. So we know that there wasn't a break among the angels yet, that they were still in a harmonious relationship. They were still united and it says then that he goes on to create the rest of the universe, so God created the angels first, then the universe, which was their sphere of operation and then, by comparing that scripture with other scriptures, specifically isaiah fourteen twelve to fourteen and isaiah I'm, excuse me ezekiel twenty eight uh, about verse uh, fifteen, sixteen, and following, we know from those passages that the highest of the angels was known as Lucifer, the son of the morning. And that he sinned by becoming arrogant. He desired to have the authority of God. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be the one to rule the angels. And the picture that we have in Ezekiel is that he was the most brilliant of all of these creatures. He was uh, the most talented of all the creatures. And he served God in a way... Uh, that is comparable to that of a priest. He's called the anointed cherub who covered. And it's very interesting that that verbiage is also used, the verbiage of being anointed, which is the Hebrew word mashiach, which is the same word, which is where we get our word Messiah. It's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the angel who covered. And this idea of covering is a word that is also related to atonement. Atonement is the covering of our sins. Now, it doesn't mean that in his covering that it had to do with sin, but what we have here is words that we later find in association with the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that all of this just simply is to indicate that this particular being held a very high position. But the passage in Ezekiel 28 goes on to say that he was trafficking, and it's a comparison with the uh, merchandise, the merchants of Tyre. And as he trafficked in this merchandise, he desired to, uh, to have this for himself. And the idea that is suggested here is that, that he served in some ways a priest over the angels in bringing their praise to God and he decided that he wanted that praise for himself rather than God. So he asserted himself in Isaiah 14, 12-14, lists those five I, I wills, and ultimately culminating in his desire uh, to be like God. So we see, first of all, in our first point, that the angels were created initially as messengers. They were created before the universe, and they inhabited the universe. Our second point is that at some point after the creation of the universe, Lucifer fell into arrogance, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 28:11 to 15. And he enticed a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion against God. Now, the third point is that after some indeterminate period of time, we don't know how long God gave them, but this was a test for the volition of the angels. And for a period of time, they were allowed an opportunity to either follow Satan or to remain loyal to God. And when this time finished, God convened a trial and he sentenced these fallen angels and Satan, Lucifer, to the lake of fire that's referred to in Matthew 25:41 and in Matthew 25:41 it is a picture of the judgment of the sheep and the goats at the end of the tribulation and the goats represent the unbelieving gentiles during the tribulation period and the lord says to them at that judgment depart into the lake of fire which was prepared past hence indicating it's already in existence It was prepared for the devil and his angels. So the third point is that in eternity past, Satan and the angels that followed him were sentenced to the lake of fire. Point number four then is, why aren't they there? If they were sentenced to the lake of fire before man was ever created, then why aren't they in the lake of fire now? Why has that sentence been postponed? And that brings us to the fifth point, which is a long point, and that is an attempt to answer that question. The Scripture does not directly answer the question, but I think we can deduce the answer by looking at a number of different things that go on in the Scripture. Most of you are familiar with this, so I'm just going to take a few moments to summarize it. First of all, What we have is a challenge to God's authority. At the very root of Satan's sin is a desire to be like God. And so he challenges God's authority. And he desires to demonstrate in this appeal of God's decision that God is really just some nasty old mean tyrant who just wants to do things His way that God doesn't want to allow his creature to really fulfill his potential and to really be able to do everything that God had given him the ability to do. And so Satan is just accusing God of being a nasty old meanie and not letting him do everything that, that Satan knows that he can do. Now what God wants to demonstrate in the process in human history is that The creature can't ever be who he wants to be unless he is doing it under the complete authority of God. Satan's claim is that the creature can autonomously find happiness and meaning in life by being everything that he wants to be. But what God is going to demonstrate in history is that when the creature acts independently of God, no matter how innocuous the act may be, it will always culminate in crisis and catastrophe and judgment. There will be sickness, there will be all kinds of negative consequences to that action. Unintended consequences, perhaps, but they are negative consequences. So Satan challenges God's authority. And what God is demonstrating as well in this is that only genuine humility on the part of the creature can lead the creature to real happiness and stability in life and we see a picture of this in Jesus Christ in fact one of the things that led me to a realization of a you might say a little fuller understanding of what's involved in the angelic conflict was to realize that in the the character qualities that are emphasized in the Lord Jesus Christ are completely antithetical to the character qualities that are emphasized By human viewpoint and by Satan's cosmic system. And so, what God is demonstrating through Christ foremost and through us secondarily as we reflect his character is that that only when the creature acts in ways consistent with God's character can there be real stability and real happiness. In Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we have a famous kenosis passage. But in the middle of that passage, we're told that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. See, this is just the opposite in terms of a character quality of what Satan exemplified. In the uh, previous uh, verse, in verse 6, Paul writes that Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, that is being in the essence of God, did not consider it, robbery, it's a poor translation the King James or New King James he didn't consider it something to be grasped after see this was what Satan did he wanted to grasp after deity he wanted to be God Jesus Christ who is God did not think holding onto or asserting his own deity was something to be held onto and he was willing to humble himself to the point of becoming a creature so that he could demonstrate the kind of character that a creature should have in terms of humility to the point that he was obedient to to go to the cross. So what we see in terms of Satan's challenge to God's authority is answered in Jesus Christ's obedience to God's authority and he humbled himself by being obedient in contrast to Satan's disobedience. Now, a second way in which the angelic conflict is played out has to do with Satan's challenge to God's love. Satan challenges God's love in the sense that he's asking, How can a loving God send his creatures to an eternity in the lake of fire? Well, God, this seems a little extreme, doesn't it? You're going to send us to eternity in the lake of fire, 100 years, 200 years, maybe, but eternity? I mean, let's face it, the punishment ought to fit the crime seems like a punishment so severe would would indicate a crime that was that severe. I just want to run things the way I want to run them. What's so wrong with that? See, this is the same thing that you find in the disobedient human heart. We just want to live our life the way we want to live it. God, quit messing with me. This is what you hear people say. They, they just want to be left alone. They don't want God interfering. And what God dem- is demonstrating in human history, that... No matter what man tries to do, and over the course of six or 7,000 years of human history or whatever it works out to be, God will show every possible permutation of creaturely independence and that it always fails. And not only does it always fail, but it always results in some sort of crisis, some sort of catastrophe, it always brings about unintended consequences of extreme suffering for the creature. We just think about the first sin, which is Adam's disobedience to God in the garden when he ate a piece of fruit. See, it wasn't the eating of the fruit that was inherently evil. It was the act of disobedience. But it was disobedience in a form that seemed trivial, I mean, how many of us would ever list eating fruit on our list of horrible sins? You know, we think of genocide. We think of someone who's an abusive parent. We can think of any number of things that are horrible uh, actions on the part of a creature. But what God is showing is even a simple act such as eating a piece of fruit can have such horrible unintended consequences as we've seen in human history. War. Famine, disease, every manner of evil, physical, emotional, whatever it may be. Everything that we see in human history is the result of that simple act of eating a piece of fruit. And so what God is demonstrating is that His focus is on the the victim that he's concerned about what happens to the human race to the creature as a result of this this sin and that's what makes satan's sin so egregious is because of what it did to the other angels and what it does in terms of all the suffering in human history it's all the result of a creature wanting to act independently of the creator so god is using human history to demonstrate the flaws in Satan's logic and to demonstrate that the creature can never ever act independently of the creator. Third, Satan is challenging God's justice. He's challenging God's justice, his his fairness. God, this really isn't fair to the creature. You really haven't given given me a chance to show what I can do. Satan wants an opportunity to show that he can rule the universe. I think it was Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, who pointed out in his systematic theology that one of the greatest evidences of Satan's failure is all of the suffering and war and disorder and calamity in human history. See, Satan wants to prove he can be God, that he can run everything, that he can bring peace and prosperity and order into the world, that he can rule it. As well as God could rule it But what he didn't realize was that when he tempted Adam to sin When Adam sinned, disobeyed in the garden And then they began to procreate And uh, eventually you have millions of sin natures running around that all want to be God That Satan created a whole bunch of competition And everybody wants to be God And nobody wants to listen to Satan as their authority either So now he has to bring order into this chaos that he created. So Satan has challenged God's justice. He wanted an attempt to show what he could do in running the universe. He wanted to replace God. And what God is demonstrating is that no one but himself, no one but God can rule the universe. No creature, no matter how brilliant, no matter how capable, has the ability to do what only God can do. Because a creature like Satan, even though he's brilliant, has, has more knowledge than any human being could ever amass, is still finite in his knowledge. He's still finite in his ability. And he is, can only be at one place at one time. So he can't do what he is attempting to do. So what we see is that when the creature operates on the basis of arrogance... The ultimate result is always self destructive. It will always breed hatred. It will polarize people. It will bring antagonism into relationships. And in contrast to this, what God is showing is only when the creature is in complete obedience and submission to the Creator can there be harmony, can there be uh, genuine love, and all of this flows from true humility. So, this is the structure of the angelic conflict. Now let's put this on kind of a a flow chart here so we can get the big picture. Down below we have a, a timeline of the dispensations from eternity past and the creation on the left to eternity future on the right. We go through all the various dispensations in human history, each one of which has a unique role to play in demonstrating different aspects of these truths in the angelic conflict. This line represents the line of the angelic rebellion. Lucifer's fall occurred sometime in eternity past before the creation of the human race. There was a trial of the fallen angels also before the creation of the human race. This would occur between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Then you have the flow of human history, which is a period of angelic observation, and what we refer to as the appeal trial of Satan, where Satan is saying, God, give me a chance to do what I can do to demonstrate my abilities. So all of human history fits within this analogy of a courtroom proceeding. This is foundational to our understanding of history, and our understanding of what God is doing. But it's not just some theological deduction. It's not something that just sort of pulled out of thin air. I want to point out the evidence from Scripture that backs up this concept that all of history fits within this legal structure. Ultimately, it ends with a judgment that is finally brought to bear on Satan, and he is cast into the lake of fire, at the end of the millennial kingdom. So we understand what goes on down below in human history because of its ultimate reference in the angelic rebellion and what God is doing there. Let's look at at some of the evidence from the Scripture. First of all, now all of this is point number six. Point number five had to do with Satan's challenge in terms of the... uh, in terms of the authority of God, the love of God, and the justice of God. Point number six, human history provides evidence in a legal court of appeal. Human history is providing evidence to support God's case in a legal court of appeal. First of all, we see that Satan's guilt, Satan's disobedience, brought about a judicial sentence from God. He is sentenced to the lake of fire at some time in eternity past, based on our understanding of Matthew twenty-five, forty-one. Furthermore, we also see that Adam's guilt also invoked a judicial sentence. The structure of Genesis chapter three, verses uh, about verse fourteen and following, where God outlines the consequences to the serpent to the woman, and then to the man, fits the concept of a judicial sentence. These are the consequences, the punishment for your action. The issue at stake is God's integrity, His righteousness, and His justice. Over and over again throughout Scripture, we see this emphasis on God's righteousness and on His justice. Just take out the Psalms someday and read through the first 10 or 15 Psalms and and circle how many times you have a reference to God's justice and His righteousness. Or go through the the whole Psalter, from Psalm one to Psalm one hundred and fifty, again and again and again. The psalmists are emphasizing God's holiness, His righteousness, His justice, truth. Uh, all of these these characteristics of God that focus on His integrity are the issue. Furthermore, we see this. Analogy of a courtroom played out in terms of basic terminology that's used. For example, the new term that is used to uh, refer to Lucifer is the Hebrew word satan, which means the accuser. So it is a legal term. It refers to someone who is bringing an accusation into a courtroom. We we see this in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is just an image that is seen in heaven. Zechariah writes, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh. That would be the Lord Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity. And Satan, that is the accuser, standing at his right hand to what? To oppose him. And the Lord, this is God the Father, said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this referring to Joshua? Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Now, this is a picture of what happens when we're saved. This is a picture of the imputation of righteousness, the removal of guilt. This is all just the, the very fact that you talk about terms like guilt Brings to bear a legal image. Uh, Zechariah 3 5. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And then it goes on in the rest of the passage. But the picture is of a courtroom scene standing before uh, the Supreme Court of Heaven with Satan as the accuser and the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who is defending Joshua. You see the same thing again in 1 John 2 1. There John writes, my little children These things I write to you So that you may not sin And if anyone sins we have an Advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous Satan is the one who accuses us But it is Jesus Christ Who is our advocate He is our defense attorney So once again You have the imagery Of a courtroom We also have the imagery of a courtroom and the idea of covenants throughout the Bible you have the initial uh, Edenic covenant that is defined I think it's not mentioned as such in Genesis 1 26 to 28 but it's referred to as such later on in the scriptures you have the Adamic covenant in uh, Genesis 3 you have the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9 the Abrahamic covenant uh, reiterated various places in Genesis the Land or real estate covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. These are all contracts. Uh, sometimes we talk about the Bible. We talk about the Old Testament and New Testament. The word testament is a legal term. What happens when you die? They go read your last will and testament. It, it, testament is a legal term. It is a contract. And so at the very root... Of all human relationship to God, there is a contract. God has bound Him to us, to, has, God has bound Himself to us uh, contractually. This doesn't happen in any other system of religion. So what we have is a unique setup. God is undergirding all human relationships with a legal structure. Now, that doesn't remove it from being personal, but it gives a basis for stability and structure to our relationship with God. We know that we can trust Him. He's not going to go off and do something different next year or next century. He's going to fulfill what He has said in these contracts. He's bound Himself legally. And this is why uh, we as Americans with a legal system that is based on a Judeo-Christian background, have a respect for the law that is unique in history. And we got it, of course, from our British forefathers. They picked it up out of Christianity and influenced Western Europe, and now Western Europe's gone back to their pagan roots, and so all law is somewhat relative. But God has bound himself... With covenants. So once again, this shows us that the Bible is structured in terms of a legal framework. Furthermore, we have various scenes in heaven that are reminiscent of a courtroom. You have the scenes in Job 1 when the angels, the sons of God, come before uh, the Supreme Court of heaven. And then you have Satan the accuser come in and he accuses Job, both in Job 1 6 through 12 and in Job 2 1 through 7. You have the picture of a courtroom. Je- Je- Zechariah three, one through seven, which we just looked at, also has that same imagery. Furthermore, when we look at salvation, salvation is couched in legal terms. The reason we need salvation is because of sin. Well, terms that are used for sin are terms that come out of a legal context. Hamartia means to miss. The mark, it's the basic word for sin. It's to fall short of a standard, and it would be used of a violation of law. We have in the Old Testament the word transgression. This is the Hebrew word pasha, which refers to a crime or criminal action, the violation of a law. The the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew pasha is the word paraptoma, and it indicates a wrongdoing, again, the violation of a standard. Another word that is used of sin is adikos. The alpha privative is like our English prefix un, meaning something that's negative. The dikos comes from the root decay, meaning righteousness, that which is violates a standard. And again, that word decay is the root for dikaio, to be made righteous, dikaiosune righteousness, and that whole word group that relates to justification and imputation. So terms for sin are terms that refer to a legal violation. Words for salvation also refer to a legal satisfaction. We have words such as propitiation, which indicates that the law has been satisfied. And when it comes to the character of God, what that means is that the character of God has been satisfied with the work of Christ on the cross. We have the word imputation, which is legally crediting something to someone's account, so that when you trust Christ as your Savior, the perfect righteousness of Christ is legally credited to your account, so that now you have a positive balance. And when God looks at your character, He looks at the character of Christ and declares you justified. You are righteous. That's what it means to be justified by faith. It doesn't mean that you've been changed from a, someone who was a sinner to a non-sinner. It means that when God looks at your record, He's looking at the character of Christ, not your character, and He says, therefore, you are justified. Terms like forgiveness, aphiemi, a concept we're familiar with in 1 John 1.9. We receive forgiveness when we confess our sins. Confession is another legal term. All of this indicates that our relationship with God is couched in legal terminology. It is all governed by legal concepts. Then we get into other aspects of Scripture And we find that there's a word group that uh, shows up a lot especially in John's writing and it's based on the verb martyreo where we get our English word martyr. The word martyreo, a martyros was a witness. Martyreo means to provide a testimony. And I just want to put a few passages up here on the screen for you to look at. Uh, John 1-7 talking about John the Baptist. This man came for a Witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. At at the end of his gospel, John writes, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is written? These signs are written, and there are basically seven signs that are given in the gospel of John, To indicate that Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be These are, as it were, seven witnesses That John is marshalling in almost a, a legal sense He's going to trot them out one at a time To demonstrate that Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be And that if you believe and accept the fact that He is the Messiah The One who died on the cross for your sins Then you can have eternal life And so the Gospel of John is filled with this legal terminology. John 3.11, the Lord is speaking, and He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that is Nicodemus, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Once again, it's this legal terminology of witness and testimony that you see in His vocabulary. Another passage that is rather lengthy Indicates this, I want you to just listen to this You know sometimes we get so busy with technicalities of doctrine We just run, we, we don't take the time to just listen to, to large chunks of scripture But I want you to listen to the verbiage in this passage Our Lord's talking, he says, John 5, 30-37 He says, I can of myself do nothing As I hear I judge Let's pay attention to these words As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness of the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man. That's the tenth legal reference. I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness, that's number 11, I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father Himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. So we have thirteen references in eight verses dealing with witness, testimony, righteousness. First John five, nine through twelve. John says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God that he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and its life is in his Son. You see the point? Our whole relationship with God is wrapped up in legal terminology. This gives us great confidence as believers that we can count on God. There's an absolute out there that is greater than us, that is unshakable, and it's grounded in the character of God. Furthermore, this means there's accountability. And so we have judgments in the Scripture. We have judgments like the judgment seat of Christ, which is an evaluation for believers. Then you have the judgment of the sheep and the goats, which I mentioned earlier at the uh, end of the tribulation. Uh, judgment of Gentile believers and unbelievers who survived the tribulation. Uh, at the, um, then you have the great white throne judgment. So you have all of these judgments. Not only that, but when you come to the Bema Seat and study the concept of rewards, An inheritance for believers, you have terminology such as inheritance that's referred to again and again through legal terminology that you would find in a will or a legal, uh, testament at the time of death. So again and again and again, God is using legal terminology to define that relationship. That's, so in conclusion from all of this, what we see is that God has God has wrapped up human history in this mantle of legal terminology, and it must fit into some broader broader category, and this is the appeal trial of Satan. That all had to do with the sixth point, that the appeal trial of Satan has to, is indicated in Scripture through this uh, multiplicity of legal terms and concepts that we find. Seventh point, we see that angels observe human actions to learn about God's character, especially His justice and His grace. These are the issues that are challenged by Satan. For example, 1 Corinthians 4.9, Paul writes, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, uh, last is men condemned to death for we have been made a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men so our life is made evident to the angels they're watching us 1st Peter 1:12 to them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have proclaimed the gospel to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into They're curious about this. They're learning things about the character of God and about this whole legal structure from watching and observing us. 1 Timothy 5.21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice. See, there's a charge before the angels. The angels are watching the local church, and in this case, they're watching the pastors of the local congregation. Seventh point, in review, angels are observing human actions to learn about God's character, especially His justice and His grace. Eighth point, and I want to wrap this up tonight, so we will take a couple more minutes. Eighth point, angels observe, as, observe human history as confirming witnesses to God's covenants and as agents for executing the judgments contained in those covenants. Let me say that again. Angels observe human history as confirming witnesses to the giving of these divine covenants. They are witnesses to God's contracts with us and agents for executing the judgments that are contained in those contracts. What I mean by this is that God sets up a contract with us and He says if you violate it, there will be certain judgments. The angels are witnesses to the contract that God sets up, and they're the ones who carry out the judgments contained in those contracts. This is very important to understand the dynamic of what's happening in the church age with regard to Revelation 2 and 3. There's a contractual relationship. There are judgments in time and in eternity, and it is the angels that are witnesses to our obedience to the contract and God's grace but they also carry out the judgments when we fail. What's our precedent for this? Well, let's look at a couple of very interesting passages in the scripture. Galatians 3:19. Paul says, "Why the law then?" This is in a passage where he's dealing with legalism in the Galatian congregation. "Why the law then?" It was added because of transgressions, that is sin having been, look at that, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Now, the last time you read, don't tell me, I don't want anybody to be embarrassed, the last time you read through Exodus 19 and 20, how many angels did you see mentioned there? You didn't see any. But Galatians 3.19 and some other passages we're going to look at, tell us that angels were there. But they're not mentioned in that passage. They were ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. The mediator here is not the Lord Jesus Christ, it's Moses. Until the seed would come, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom the promise had been made. What we see here is that... uh, the law is given because of, because of sin on the part of the nation Israel. And it's given through the angels. It is ordained through the angels. And the Greek word here is the word diatasso. You have two words. This is the verb diatasso. D-I-A-T-A-S-S-O. And you have diatagma. Which is the noun form. D-I-A-T-A-G-M-A. This is used in the, uh, Acts 7, I think it's 43. Maybe dyslexic, it might be 34. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, it's, it's a, the noun form of the verb. And the verb means that tasso or tagma has to do with something that is ordered or structured. The dia has to do with being, with the preposition dia meaning through. So it, it's focusing on something that is organized, structured, and, uh, and, and outlined. The other passage where we find the noun is in Acts 7.53. Acts 7.53, who have received the law by, Stephen is speaking, he's confronting the uh, uh, Pharisees, they're getting ready to stone him, and he's rehearsing the history of Israel. talks about the Jews who have received the law by the, what, direction of angels and have not kept it. That's the word diatagma. It's, it's similar to the verb we have in, in uh, Galatians. The idea here is that angels organized and ordered the law. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's go back and look at a couple of passages in the um, in the Scriptures. Hebrews 2, 2 says, For if the word spoken through angels, notice the word spoken through angels, the angels spoke the word, uh, the giving of the law. Now, when did this happen? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 22 says that these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and He added no more. So God spoke verbally and audibly to the Jews when they were assembled below Mount Sinai. If you had been there with your MP3 recorder, you could have recorded him for all time and eternity. It is not something they heard internally don't psychologize this like a uh, modern american this is a, an objective event then in verse in Deuteronomy uh, 33 332 we read that the lord came from sinai and dawned on them from seir he shone forth from mount paran and he came notice moses this is a song moses is rehearsing what happened at sinai he came with 10,000s of and the king james translated it saints actually it's a noun form of kadash holy ones it's angels when the lord came at sinai moses says there were 10,000 angels with him now when we put all of this together put all of this together what we realize is that god gave the law to moses and then apparently there were angels who communicated and exegeted the law to the Jews at the base of Mount Sinai. They made sure that they understood how the law was to be applied and understood. That's what Hebrews 2.2 2 is talking about. Uh, Galatians, Acts, three times the New Testament you have reference to this. It's ignored in the, in the Old Testament, but the New Testament tells us angels were present. So what's going on here? It is that angels are serving as officers of the court, just like today in a modern courtroom, a U.S. marshal is going to deliver a, a, a statement from the judge, and he will make sure that the jurors understand what it means. He'll make sure that everyone involved in the courtroom proceeding understands what it means. So, what the, the so the, we see here a function of the angels that is not dissimilar from what would happen today. In a modern courtroom officer, Functioning as officers of the court To make sure that things are understood We see this in, in Revelation Revelation 1.1 We read that, that the revelation of Jesus Christ Was uh, given By the Lord Jesus Christ But he used an angel To communicate it He communicated and sent This revelation By his angel to his servant John Revelation 22.6 then he said to me, These words, that is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to John, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servant, that is John, the things which must shortly take place. And again in Revelation 22, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify. There's that legal term again. To testify to you these things in the churches. See, again and again we have this, this operation. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is that you have a legal operation taking place here. I'm going to skip ahead a couple, of, a couple of slides. You have a legal operation here, just like in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, when God gave the law to Moses, He gave him two copies. One copy went into the Ark of the Covenant, one copy went to the people. Same thing happens today. You go down, and you execute a legal document. One copy is filed and put on registry with the, with the county courthouse. Another copy goes in your file. What is happening with the book of Revelation is that the Lord Jesus Christ is giving the revelation to John, who is making seven copies of the whole book, chapters 1 through 22, and giving that, giving each church a copy. They get the whole book. at the heavenly level, the Lord Jesus Christ is giving an angelic witness a copy of the critique sheet for each congregation. You see, that angelic witness is standing as as a functionary of the heavenly court, as a witness of God's grace and integrity in each congregation. And God is evaluating each congregation. That's what these seven letters to the seven churches are. They're not like the epistles that we have from Paul and Peter and John earlier in the New Testament, which are talking about how to live the Christian life. These are evaluation statements. And so the angel is given this evaluation statement, and the church is given a copy. The church has said, you still have time to change your mind in certain areas and to apply doctrine and move forward. The angel has said... If these churches don't straighten up and apply doctrine, then it's your job to execute judgment and take out the congregation. And that's what happened historically to these seven congregations, is they failed to apply doctrine and they went through the process of judgment. And this is a cycle that we see again and again in human history, as people become complacent with what they have, complacent with the doctrine that they've been taught, and eventually they begin to take it for granted. they begin to take God's grace for granted, and before long the spiritual life isn't significant for them and they become distracted with all the details of life. And the next thing you know they're in reversionism and they begin the churches begin to deteriorate, they get into ritualism, they get into legalism, they deny the deity of Christ, they deny that the the creatorship of God, they deny creation, and before long they're under judgment, and God takes out the congregations and takes out the nation. We'll see this as we continue our study next time, going through the seven letters to the seven churches, and we'll start with the first epistle, which is to the first letter, the first congregational evaluation report, which is to the church at Ephesus with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by these things. We're especially mindful that there may be someone here this evening who is unsure of their own salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny. We dedicate this time for that individual or those individuals. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You paid the penalty. The issue now is what do you believe? Will you accept His death on your behalf or not? Just simply believe. That's all that's involved. It's not ritual. It's not joining a church. It's not improving your life, making a bargain with God. It is simply believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. At the instant that you believe that, God the Father in His omniscience knows what you're trusting. And at that instant you're saved. You become a new creature in Christ, and it can never be taken from you. And it is yours forever, and you have eternal life. This is your opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. Now, Father, we thank you for what we studied this evening. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we would uh, accept the challenge of the application of these truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.